Good morning, everyone. Uh, we managed to connect. Uh, we were having some technical difficulties. Uh, Dr. Zucker was getting a little bit nervous, but we knew that uh, if Philip and Steve would come through. And as far as I know, you're seeing me. Hopefully, you are. If you're not, tell me. Uh, I think they're giving a uh, thumbs up that it is working. So welcome to Grand Rounds. Uh, thank you for joining us once again. Uh, this is going to be a very, very special Grand Rounds and a little bit of a uh, sweet and sour to me in many ways because uh, uh, we're, uh, Dr. Zucker, who's a, who's a friend and a colleague, will be presenting today and uh, in, in sort of a preamble to his retirement. But, but before I introduce the Grand Rounds, I think uh, I do need to uh, speak to all of you about you know, the tragic events uh, in Minneapolis and, and what happened there um, and the tragic death uh, of George Floyd. Uh, I did my fellowship in Minneapolis. It's a, it's a great city, great people, and it just it pains me to have seen what, what we all have seen and the injustice that took, injustice that took place um, and, and how this country is suffering as a result of that, as a result of so many other things that have happened in the past. So I think this is a time that we come together as a people we embrace each other. What we can do individually is to take care of each other. What we can do individually is to reach out and make sure that we stand for justice in as many ways as we can. Uh, that is how we change it. This, that's how we get America to be where it needs to be. Uh, and I am still somebody who has eternal optimism that we will get there. So again, I'm going to ask all of you at home in the office, wherever you are behind your computers, to just pause for a few seconds, uh, honor the life of George Floyd and all of those who, uh, like him, passed away in similar circumstances, and that uh, through that peaceful moment in the next few seconds that we, we gain some strength so we can keep moving forward. So let's just pause for a few seconds in this crazy, crazy world and, and ask that we uh, then we move forward. Thank you. So now we move on to, uh, to uh, again, this very special Grand Rounds uh, uh, by someone who I call my friend, uh, who uh, advises me, uh, who sometimes drives me crazy, too, uh, through Angela. Uh, he wants to talk to me all the time. Uh, but I always enjoy the conversations with him. Sneaks up onto the fourth floor and says, I just need a minute. I know a minute from Aaron is probably about two hours. Uh, but I always enjoy them. So those are things that are very important. And so as I was preparing just a few remarks about him, um, I always have files for everyone. And so you need to know that. If you're a faculty member, I have a file on you. And I can find stuff that you probably didn't remember you even had. And um, of course, with Aaron, it's all good. Couldn't find anything bad. So, it's, uh, so I, what I decided to go back is to a letter that was written uh, by Dr. John Ray, who's the former chair of pediatrics. And this was November 4, 1997, before Aaron arrived. And he was uh, asking uh, Howard Tennant, who is, uh, uh, who's been the chairman of the Senior Appointments Promotions Committee forever since that time. He's still the chair. And, and Howard uh, received the letter that I'm going to read very briefly just the introduction, and then I'll tell you a couple more things about Aaron. So I'm pleased to nominate Aaron Zucker for appointment as professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine, 
We recruited Dr. Zucker this summer from Weiler Children's Hospital of the University of Chicago to be director of the Division of Critical Care Medicine at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. Dr. Zucker is a nationally known pediatric intensivist who has demonstrated outstanding administrative, educational, and clinical leadership at Weiler Children's Hospital. He was promoted there to associate professor in 1989, and thus has been eight years in rank. Since that time, he has spent approximately 30% of his time in clinical care, 30% in education, 10% in research, and 30% in administrative responsibilities. He was recruited to develop the Division of Critical Care Medicine at our Children's Hospital, as well as to play a significant leadership role in the hospital in the Department of Pediatrics. We are so fortunate to have recruited an individual with such outstanding abilities, and I am pleased to nominate him for appointment as Professor of Pediatrics. And uh, John could not have been more right about this. Uh, this is back in 1997. Fast forward all these years, um, and, and almost at the beginning of, of Connecticut Children's, Aaron has been uh, present, has been a leader, has been somebody who has really reshaped us. And of course, on April 27, 1998, Les Cutler, who was the Chancellor and Provost of Health Affairs, said, Dear Dr. Zucker, I am pleased to confirm your appointment as professor of pediatrics in, at the School of Medicine, effective April 7, 1998, so, so many years ago. Please note that in this position, you will not be receiving salary from the University of Connecticut and that the appointment does not lead to tenure, but we're gr indeed grateful for your contributions that you're making to our programs. And so that, that was just the qualification that, that you had. Now, a good friend of yours who has worked with you for many years um, sent me an email, and, and I modified it a little bit, and just highlighting some of the things that, that um, Aaron has done and, and why Aaron has been so instrumental. And, and here you go. And um, the email started, hi there, I hope you're well. And I think you know who you are. And, and here it is. Uh, Aaron has shown continued growth as a leader, from his own 360 to his team's development, to resilience, to burnout, and moral distress, and now it, excellence in leadership. That also shines a light on an upward spiral of continuous improvement. He has positioned his team wisely and making their progress views kindly and clearly and making requests to enable their success. He has made a powerful case for continuous learning and collaboration in multiple ways and has promoted a connection with our academic and hospital leadership that is authentic and powerful. He took something hard in his work life and made it meaningful and additive to the organization. And that's what we call true resilience. And I think that describes Aaron perfectly. And, and that's why we're going to miss him so much, although he's not too far away because Kathy remains with us. And so we have, um, we have a, a link to him. He can't go too, too far away. And Kathy's here wearing a mask right behind the, the podium here. Um, and Aaron, uh, we have something for you. And of course, we will celebrate Aaron's retirement and with the proper decor, um, probably a drive through at some point, And eventually, we'll do it at the Pond House which is what, what you deserve, Aaron. Uh, but, but obviously, with social distancing, physical distance, we can't have the wines at the Pond House at least for probably you know, six to eight months. But we'll do it. I promise you we'll do it. And, and then we'll drink some scotch. So this is a plaque that is for you, Aaron. Thank you for your years of service and tireless dedication as division head. And, and the quote here is, a true leader has the confidence to stand alone, the courage to make tough decisions, and the compassion to listen to the needs of others. So important, that compassion. He does not set out to be a leader, but becomes one by the equality of his actions and the integrity of his intent. And that's you, my dear friend. And um, so with that, I'm going to um, put my mask back on, you know, properly. 
Um, and I'm going to ask you to come over so I can give you this. And uh, Anna Marie's going to take a picture. If, if she gets her, so yeah, you can move a little closer. And, and so this is, um, so you can get on the video yeah, so they can see you there. So this is for, for Aaron. And yeah, this is the Zoom version of how we do this. Um, and hopefully Anna Marie can take pictures with her camera. Uh, there we go. Thank you. Congrats. We are smiling. We are smiling. We are, I'll, I'll, I'll leave this here for you. And I'm going to do something else. Um, put your hands out. And it, in light with the era of coronavirus, you are now properly cleansed. And baptized is almost retired. So please. <laughs> Come on in. As always is the case, it's hard to take off a mask when you're wearing hearing aids, but, you know, I'll work on it here. Thank you, Juan, for that, uh, that warm introduction and for taking up at least half my time um, for the talk. So, so I was going to say there's a lot, of, a lot of slides here anyway. I'm going to power through some of them, even though I truncated it a little bit this morning for version 14. Uh, so it'll be version 14.5. Um, thank you for that. Um, I want to say a couple of things up front as well. Um, obviously, this is not the way we expected to be doing this when we started thinking about it months ago. COVID was not on the horizon. Um, I expected to have a group, of, a group of people in front of me to smile and pat on the back and you know, really enjoy ourselves and make some eye contact, and we can't do that. And it's unfortunate, but it is, it is what it is. Um, and when you talked about things like resilience and such, which is going to be part of my talk toward the end, COVID actually, you know, really magnifies the kind of message that I want to give um, about how we're going to all move forward together uh, and, and build a future. And so there, there really is um, a large impact that makes it even more poignant um, than it would have been in the beginning. So I've been referring to this uh, before my retirement as my terminal grand rounds. Um, <laughs> And I've called it the long and winding road. Um, a senior pediatric intensivist reflects upon the past and makes some conjecture about the future. Let's see if this works. So I'm going to be trying to distill 40 years of practice in about, this said 45 minutes. It's going to be more like 55 minutes. So I hope I can get this done. I talk fast, and I hope I don't talk too fast. We're going to talk about the past um, observations, some crazy happenings that I've come across, and some of my most uh, extraordinary patients from the last 39 years of practice. My perspective is that of a pediatric critical care physician. But a lot of what I have to say is, is very much applicable to nurses, respiratory therapists, administrators. We're all in this game together. Um, but there will be a lot of doctor-centric type of stuff when I, when I give my points. I've told a number of these anecdotes before. I have a lot of war stories, and some of the people in my division, I won't be able to see you rolling your eyes um, at home or wherever you are, uh, but just bear with me. And if my recollections don't jibe exactly with yours, please don't call in at the end and burst my bubble. Just let me run with it, okay? Um, then we get to the present clinical practice in the PICU, um, combining evidence and experience. Some of my individual navigations and how those navigations have uh, coalesced with uh, the, the medical staff at large and with the hospital and challenges that I think that we all face and that you will face after I'm gone working forward. And then we're going to talk about the future, my future as well. It's a pediatric audience, so I thought I'd have a little fun and take some of the chapters of this talk, if you will, and use um, Dr. Seuss titles um, to kind of you know, break this up. And this one says, did I ever tell you how lucky I am? I put the I am on there. It's really, did I ever tell you how lucky you are? I do. Um, amend these a little bit for my own purpose. 
um, but bear with me on that one. And there's, I want to say one other thing. There's a um, PowerPoint template that we're all supposed to use now for branding. It has to have the right background color and the right font size and the right font color. Um, I chose to ignore that uh, for my own purpose because what are you going to do, fire me? So I usually give credit where credit is due, and I default to the pronoun we a lot, but not today. This is my book about me, at least in the beginning of the talk, before we get to the larger, uh, larger community. So I really wanted to be a cowboy when I started, um, but I lived in Brooklyn, so there really wasn't really much training for being a cowboy. So my next idea was to be a human hair model. Um, that didn't work out either, so I said, out of the hell with that, I'm going to be a pediatric critical care physician, and the rest is history. How doggone long have I been at this? I won't, again, read everything on all these slides, but there aren't going to be any handouts, obviously, today, so the, this stuff will be there if you want to look at it later. Um, gas was 65 cents a gallon. We had to go to the medical library to look things up. It was an actual building. We didn't have, you know, cell phones to look up Google immediately on rounds and get the answer. I was the first section chief of pediatric critical care medicine at the University of Chicago back in 1983. There really was no one that was in charge of the unit before that. And I was there for about 15 years before coming here in 1997. And I'm old enough to have certificate number 181 in critical care because I sat for the first board exam. Here are some major things and, that have happened during the time that I've been a clinician that if you look at the list, and I just free associated when I was thinking about the talk, so many things that have come and gone and so many new things that we didn't have back in those days. And we would wonder, how could we practice nowadays without them? We used to see Rye syndrome, but we stopped giving kids aspirin and that went away. We used to see lots of H influenza infections and uh, meningitis and buccal cellulitis and all kinds of stuff. And once the Hib vaccine came in, we don't see much of that anymore. Um, I'm going to skip through. We didn't have, whoops, whoops, whoops. We didn't have CT scans, much less MRIs, so we just had to do things with uh, you know, skull films and do the best we could with clinical exam. There were no pulse oximeters. There was no BiPAP. There was no point of care ultrasound or bladder scans. There was no ISTAT. Can you imagine nowadays not being able to get a lactate in less than two minutes because you needed to make a decision? Well, we've almost can't function anymore that way. At least we can't do it state of the art. We didn't have any of this stuff back then. 24-7 in-house coverage by attending physicians was something that people talked about, but nobody was doing. We had no electronic health record. You can love it or you can hate it, but we had no electronic health record. And now we have parents and grandparents who are actually adult patients in the ICU. Kids who had uh, congenital heart surgery when they were three months old are now 45 and 50 years old and we have to take care of them if they have complications later in life. This is just a crazily different world. So practice has some funny moments and some meaningful impact as well, and it's one of these, you can't really make this stuff up. Um, and as I said, I tell some anecdotes, and I at least want to be able to show you in hard copy that I'm actually not making all this stuff up. So this is, and to think I saw it on Washington Street or in Chicago, as opposed to I saw it on Mulberry Street. Here are some of what I call the greatest lab results of all time. These are the kinds of things when you tell people these, they say, you've got to be making this up, but I'm really not. This is one patient's blood gases over a 47-minute period starting top to bottom. And if you look at the first one, this patient already has a PCO2 of 186 millimeters of mercury, which is astronomical. And during CPR, we did a great job. The next PCO2, 30 minutes later, is 300. At 47 minutes, it is 406. 
I didn't think it was conceivably possible on a, on a theoretical basis to get a PCO2 of 406, but there you go. That's real hard copy off the blood gas machine. Just want to share that one. I called it gases inversus. On the opposite side of the coin, you can do things really aggressively and find out you're really not working with the PALS manual all that well when you resuscitate somebody. The patient at the top has a pH of 8.09. The patient next at the bottom is 8.45. Look at the PCO2, it's 8. So this is, you're pushing, you're breathing faster than heck, you're giving bicarb, bicarb, bicarb when you don't need it, and you get a pH of 8.45. None of these patients, by the way, did all that terribly well, as you might imagine. How about the one at the bottom? This is a laboratory that had quality control by sending us a lab result that said the patient's serum sodium was zero milliequivalents per liter. Not easy to do. Nor is this real. That was obviously not real. This is a, a real one where the serum sodium was 199. Um, I don't think I've ever seen greater than 200. Somebody sitting in the room with me says she has, um, but I certainly haven't. And lastly, here is a kid. So you have to be careful what you, what you wish for. The anesthesiologist got an uh, ionized calcium machine. It was the first time we ever had one, and they took a little baby for a liver transplant, and the ionized kept coming back low, so they kept giving calcium and calcium and calcium, and you get the idea. When the kid came back to the ICU, we didn't have an ionized machine, so we did a total calcium of 31.3, with the top normal being 10. Uh, guess whose liver architecture and vasculature calcified and, and rejected the transplant? So some of my most memorable patients with a small disclaimer, which is, um, this is again, one of these things that kind of can't make this stuff up. And I just picked and chose things uh, and pa patients that I remembered really well. Um, I could do a lot more, but just in the sake of time, there's just gonna be a few. United Airlines passenger CS. So this was, uh, I was an intern in pediatrics. I was at O'Hare Airport picking up a friend and announcement went over the loudspeaker, is there a doctor in the house? And being dumb enough to get involved, um, I went to the gate and they ushered me onto a fully loaded plane that was about to pull out where an older woman had collapsed and was down literally the aisle um, with her arms across you know, the, the two rows of seats. They were trying to bag her. They did not have an oxygen tank, but they were trying to bag her, it wasn't working. Um, and I got on the plane and right after I got there, paramedics from uh, EMS came and they had all the equipment we needed we intubated her, and I actually gave her a dose of intracardiac epinephrine as an intern in pediatrics. Um, it, it, uh, she did not survive, uh, unfortunately, and they took, us, they took us to Resurrection Hospital, of all places, in North Chicago. I, I, you can't make it up. Um, and uh, the, the rest was kind of history. Months later, I was notified that there was a package waiting for me at the University of Chicago's loading dock. And this letter from United Airlines from 1978, and thanking me for my attempt to you know, do, do a good deed. And as a token of their esteem, because everybody knows all doctors play golf every Wednesday, they sent me an Arnold Palmer golf putter. I asked for a tennis racket when I called the guy up because I don't play golf and he did not give me one. Second patient is Michael. Michael was a three-year-old child who got into his grandfather's digoxin. Um, I was uh, called down to the uh, ED because we were going to have to admit this kid. And he was mildly bradycardic and a little lethargic, and then all of a sudden collapsed into a V-fib, asystole uh, type of sets of rhythms. Um, there was a traumatic intubation that occurred, and we started doing CPR. And by sheer happenstance, one of the pediatric cardiology fellows walked by and said, what's going on? Can I help? And we told him what happened, and he went, oh my God, I resisted a lecture with the adult cardiologists. They're part of an, a national study with Harvard 
for digoxin antibodies. It gets rid of digoxin toxicity. He said, oh my God, I've got to find these guys. Don't stop, you know, because we may have an antidote for this kid. Well, he disappeared to go find this stuff. We did CPR for a long time. Um, in fact, it turned out to be a total of two hours and 20 minutes rotating people on and off this kid's chest. We went to fluoroscopy. They floated a transvenous pacemaker. It wouldn't capture. By the time the, the guy got back, he got the vial. We mixed the stuff up, and we injected it. And like magic, this kid's, within moments, this kid's rhythm reverted to a slow idioventricular rhythm. Then it began to look much more normal. He started to warm up. He was ice cold. And he started to sit up and open his eyes. Two and a half hours worth of resuscitation. This is a week later. He was extubated. He had strider. He ended up getting a temporary tracheostomy from the intubation. But as you see, he looks pretty bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and went home, as far as we could tell, totally neurologically normal. And it was luckily my first, first author manuscript. Nicholas um, was an eight-year-old boy who had um, a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I was introduced to him with a stat call to a CT scan where a geyser of blood was coming out of this kid's mouth as he lay on his back. We were able to get him intubated. He went on to severe ARDS and multi-organ system uh, failures. Took a long time to recover. He also ended up with tracheostomy and chemotherapy and all kinds of other great stuff. Um, and one of the reasons he's so memorable is we don't get to follow kids like this, like some subspecialties do for years and years and years because we work in the ICU or private pediatricians who follow you know, families forever. Um, but I was able to contact Nicholas's family through some, uh, some internet manipulations. And 14 years, so this is him when he was eight years old with my colleagues at the university. That's me with a little bit more hair down at the bottom right, and there's Nick. And then when I got a hold of him 14 years later, there he is with the beard and mustache, graduating from Purdue University with a degree in engineering. Um, and just a fabulous way to close a loop with a great, great family that we really, really enjoyed. And there are some people, I think, from the University of Chicago listening in today, and they may well remember, uh, remember this guy. Then there's Paul. The gift of life was murder, said the, news, the newspaper. Um, baby came in. I got called to the ED because it looked like a SIDS death. And from the very beginning, none of the stories I was being told by the family hung right. It just didn't seem right. And I remember telling the, uh, the uh, officer that was there, I smell a rat as you can see at the bottom quote. Um, long and short of it is, months later, the guy calls me back. The child had been brain dead and had donated his heart to a baby who was at another children's hospital in Chicago right up the road, just as things turned out, and the baby had survived and done well. Well, this officer called me back and said, you won't believe what happened. We kept kind of banging on this guy's cage, and he finally admitted that he smothered the child. The child was crying too much, and he suffocated the child. And on top of the fact that he was trying to donate organs so that they couldn't tell maybe at an autopsy what had happened to the child, he feared they could, he also had a relative who worked with the mother of the child who needed the heart transplant. And so he thought that he would look like a great contributor to the community in an altruistic way. His tragedy would become the life-saving maneuver for this baby who actually did do well after the heart transplant. Um, and it was just the wildest story. There was a made-for-TV movie company that was thinking of making a movie from it. It was really pretty crazy. But in the long run, um, he uh, ended up in jail for 50 years. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, some of the greatest patients of all time also are here at, uh, at Connecticut. And I'm going to take this down to two. One is Alaria. 
Ilaria was a young girl with spinal, a young teenager with spinal muscular atrophy. Came here from Italy with her family to get a special kind of mini ventilator to help her breathe. And while she was here, had a respiratory and cardiac arrest and went on to, unfortunately, to brain death. And her parents donated organs um, from her body to American children. And the way, why this story is so much more impressive to me is they did this because a few years before, Nicholas Green, who was a little kid who was in Italy with his family, was murdered by a, a passing group of people who shot into their car. And the Greens donated multiple organs from their son to Italian children. And this family was paying it backward, forward, however you want to call that. Um, and it was a very, very heartwarming situation. Um, and uh, they opened up a, um, a, a donation, organ donation awareness uh, group in Como, Italy. My favorite patient is Nicole, or Nikki. Nikki actually is here with us today, um, and many people listening from, from our hospital know her really, really well. Nikki was five years old when she presented to us a, a little spitfire of a girl, as I understand, uh, healthy in every way, who had an intra-abdominal infectious catastrophe with clostridium. Um, she was extraordinarily sick, and there, there's so many reasons why she is so special to me. She really embodies what happens when a team like ours descends upon a child acutely, gets things taken care of over the long time, takes care of her as she recuperates, and has a wonderful outcome. So she ended up in the hospital for 225 days, I believe was the actual number, five months in the unit, two months in, in rehab on the floor. Um, I think the biggest single hero she probably has is Dr. Michael Bork, who was a, a meticulous surgeon of ours, who took her to the operating room. I, it was either every day for 14 days or 18 days, I remember, forget which. Would go into her abdomen, see what was there, take what wouldn't work out, leave what might work in, and just chipped away like he was Michelangelo doing a, a sculpture. Um, and at the end of this, he finally said, I think, I think we have a winner here, it's going to work. Um, and then she had her long rehab that I talked about before and such. She had a tracheostomy at one point. She went home without that. She spent a birthday in the hospital. And one of the most beautiful parts of this, not just the great outcome and how the team works so well together, is to really close a loop. She now works here at Connecticut Children's in our human resources department, where I understand she does a fantastic bang-up job. And Nikki, I'm going to ask you if you can come up for a sec. Yeah, I've got to put my mask back on. I've got to do this right. And I guess I can only do this. I was going to give her a big hug and all. I can't do that. But this is our gem. She is a wonderful young lady, and it just warms my heart. I, every time I see her, my office is right by hers here. It is the most wonderful thing. And I have to also say, what a testimony to her family. She has such a positive outlook. How she has such a positive outlook after all that, I will never know. I marvel at her, and I'm going to let her say a word or two. Say a word or two. Well, thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here today, and um, oh, it's such an honor to be here today and to celebrate you, and really just you know to hear all about your journey and all the people that you've touched. And I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything that you did um, for me and patients like me here at Connecticut Children's. Um, and it's just so great to be here and be sitting next to you. So thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad you could come. All right. So 
Moving on, practicing critical care is part science and part judgment. People have asked me, what do you think your legacy is when you leave? And I'd never really thought of it that way. But part of the legacy is certainly our growth into a real team in our division. You know these folks. They're all amazingly and highly skilled. And like artists, each has their personal flair. So did I ever tell you how lucky you are? This is how lucky you are. These are the nine people in the division who will still be here after I depart. And you know them as fantastic doctors. They're always trying to do the very best for patients and their families and working in conjunction with other subspecialties and the nurses and the, and the RTs and everybody else. Um, I would put this group up against any group in the country. They're fantastic. And you know that. And I can't spend a real lot of time on each one and each what they do because I just don't have that much time. But trust me, they're all really accomplishers in every way. And that can't be done alone with the doctors. There's the entire PICU care team, nurses, respiratory therapists, you know, pharmacists, occupational therapy folks that, that work afterward. It's just such a great, it is a village. It really is a village. Our team aligns in practice when we have solid evidence. And I'm not going to read all these things to you. Again, they're, they're there for things that I, that I free associated about. Um, some of the things that we know we have to do um, that there is evidence for is to get appropriate antibiotics into septic patients as soon as possible and try for that less than one golden hour because mortality goes up with time. Um, we know that we need to get plastic out of patients. They uh, weren't born with central venous catheters or Foley's, so we try to get them out as soon as we possibly can. Nowadays, we know we have to focus on minimizing iatrogenic delirium because we used to snow kids a lot more than we do now with medications because it seemed like if you made them super comfortable with the ventilator, that was a good thing. But we were probably often causing a lot of harm by developing uh, drug-induced delirium that has after effects after the children are discharged from the unit and we wouldn't even know about it. So again, these are just a, a panoply of things that we do know that we have evidence for. But a paradox of physician leadership is being an expert, yet acknowledging when we really don't have hard, fast data to support what we do and learning as we go. So it's really learning agility. Our team couples best evidence with seasoned judgment and collaboration, again, about topics like these that I won't read all of them to you, but these are the kinds of things we do every single day, and there really is not hard and fast data to support exactly what we do, but there are good reasons to do what we do. Um, which critically ill patients are truly adrenally insufficient and need hydrocortisone? Um, how best to wean sedatives or mechanical ventilation support? Which patients really need gastritis prophylaxis? You would think we know hard and fast answers to all these after all these years, but these are things that are really hard to study, but we do know what sensible, good, stately practice is. It's the art of medicine in the PICU. And the team has to evolve its practice as new evidence emerges. So there's, the learning agility is, is basically stated, you don't want to hang on to things you think you know and not look at new evidence. But you also don't want to leap in with both feet when new evidence seems to be there that may not stand the test of time. And again, I won't read all of them, but there are a lot of things in this list where uh, I call them the next shiny thing that came along. And whether or not one would, would, would jump in whole hog and, and embrace these as your practice pattern and say everybody else ought to do this um, was up in the air give you an idea, um, tight glucose control in critical illness, there was a lot of literature for years coming out that said you should use an insulin infusion and make sure your, your serum glucose stayed between 80 and 120 really, really tight, because if you didn't, it was bad for, uh, for mortality for, for a patient population. 
um, it turned out that um, I think it's fair to say that you made yourself crazy trying to do that. And it clearly was that there were um, complications that occurred with hypoglycemia as well um, when people tried to be too strict about this. And so really what we took away from it is don't be dumb, don't make them hypoglycemic, and don't let them be really hyperglycemic, and you're probably doing about the best that you can. And if any of my colleagues are listening on the phone and think that I, on the, the Zoom and think I'm being too simplistic, once again, please don't call and burst my bubble. I think, I think this makes sense. And the PICU team, actually, we're going to usher in developments that I think are going to be more definitive um, over the course of time. Those kinds of studies, adrenal insufficiency, surfactant replacement therapy, and ARDS, you need lots and lots and lots of patients at lots of places where everybody does the, the protocol the exact same way in order to get any real meaningful data. And those are so hard to do. But I think personalized medicine is actually going to be a little bit more exact. We have what's called theranostics, the ability to select optimal medication therapies um, and rather than trial and error prescribing. You can uh, get your cytochrome P450 system analyzed. And depending on how, what your genotype is, you may take a certain antidepressant and it may wipe you out and cause toxicity, where for the next patient, it's the perfect one based on the way it's metabolized in the body and vice versa. These things can be done now. There's going to be molecular analysis. There are actually places that are able to do rapid whole exome or genome sequencing in 24 to 48 hours, almost like Star Trek. Um, and you can know everything about the patient's genetic makeup and make decisions or make diagnoses based on that. Consider that only a month ago, we couldn't get a, uh, a COVID-19 test done in less than 48 hours. That's pretty impressive when you think about it. These kinds of things, I think, really will be more hard and fast and definitive rather than the other types of clinical uh, stuff that I talked about on the previous slides. So moving on to retiring from practice, a chance to make requests and share hopes as I depart. And I like this quote from Jonathan Sachs. Optimism is the belief that things are going to get better. Hope is the belief that we can make them better. It's passive or active, and we need to be active. Shifting realities have changed what we do in medicine, and we have to use the word the business of medicine, which really wasn't what we concentrated on as much, at least we clinicians, way back in the day when I started. And you kind of feel like Sisyphus. You know, they, they, he was uh, condemned in mythology to roll this giant ball up a hill. As soon as I got up to the hill at the top, it rolled back down, and he was condemned to do this over and over and over again for eternity. And you can feel like that, not just in medicine, in any job, I suppose, but in medicine, we're starting to feel that more and more. And here are some examples of why I think we feel those things. We have much higher expectations for quality, for academic advancement, for using the electronic medical record, but a lot of skills aren't taught up front. We become employees of integrated systems, and we have to chase profits because no margin, no mission uh, is, is a reality. There's a fragmentation, a loss of continuity, a lot more shift work. Like, where do we fit in? This is the way I contemplated it would feel when I started. There's the role of internet, and, and patients and families are consumers. They read the internet, and they come to you with, why aren't you doing it that way? We think you should do it that way because we read about it. Is the art of medicine still valued? And there's a changing demographic that's real and creative tensions about work-life balance, whatever the heck that is, um, and accountabilities. And it's not just between mature and more newly trained MDs, but there certainly is that tension as well. And it's all legit. So I started thinking about this stuff years ago. And the term burnout, which I think is really our own pandemic, is something that we have to deal with. Um, it's not going away. 
This term was coined by Dr. Christina Maslach in the late 1970s, and it has three basic elements. Exhaustion, which can be mental and physical. Cynicism or depersonalization, you get more callous in what you're doing. And professional inefficacy or saying, I don't get anything meaningful done. I don't know if I'm valued. Why am I here? People are overwhelmed. They perform poorly. They interact poorly. The system falls apart. And Dr. Seuss would say, I'm not going to get up today. I just don't feel like going to work. I can't deal with this anymore. And I felt elements of burnout. And I did not want to succumb. I wanted to figure out a way to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. But I needed help doing it. I wasn't doing it well. So Dr. Dworkin, before Dr. Salazar, and then Dr. Salazar, and Marlene Ferris in Human Resources supported me, and then my division afterward for 360 coaching and what is referred to as emotional intelligence training. And we continue that to this day in our group. This is Kathy Flavin. Um, she is uh, our guru in all this. She worked with me, and then she worked with our group, and she's worked throughout the hospital with a, a large number of people um, at all levels um, to help um, instill some of this training and, and knowledge in them. And she's really had a major benefit and impact um, on lots of people. Coaching and feedback, I think, are blessings, and they help see parts of ourselves more clearly and grow in ways that we might not even know we wanted to in the first place. And I can't overstate the benefit. When I had my first 360, um, things that I told Kathy she would absolutely hear over and over from my division were wildly off the mark. Didn't hear them at all, and vice versa. There were things I wasn't expecting that I did hear. And until you get that feedback, you don't really know where you stand. You think you do. It takes buy-in and trust to begin. It takes infusions of skill building with someone who can help you do that. And then you have to practice. If you don't keep doing this and practicing it, it fades after the first week that you start. Constructive feedback on what we do well is important and where we can improve is important, and it's really gold. And after my indoctrination, we took it to my division members. After me, work extended, after my group, work extended. Um, we worked into then what's called resilience building. We had uh, a course in resilience building that Kathy was part of. And that, these are the adaptive skills and behaviors that help you challenge and overcome stress. Now, where you see below there where I say, I implore you too, and I'll go over those. In this day of COVID, these things are going to be even more difficult than they would have been if I gave the lecture six months ago. And what I mean by that is, it has added such an enormous financial, programmatic, all kinds of stresses to all of us. Um, and so it, we have to really double down on what I implore you to do here. You have to accept that some things you just can't fix and change. You have to do the best to look for the upside. And again, COVID, look for the upside. I realize that that's uh, kind of like pre preaching about something that may not, uh, may not seem like it's possible. Don't ruminate or obsess about things that you can't control. Work on the things you can. Be willing to compromise, connect and provide social support. You are not alone. Reach out to each other. That message is going to resound for the rest of this talk and is really what I'm going to be leaving you with over and over. It sounds like waving pom-poms, but if we don't support each other, we won't be able to get through this. And I know we will support each other and we will get through it. So going back to burnout for a moment, it's a mismatch between the individuals, individual and the organization or a job. And the organization has to do its part. You and I can't fix everything so that when we go on vacation, recharge our batteries, and come back, if it's the same situation, we're going to do this all over again. So the institution or organization has to help by doing its part. And these are the things that Dr. Maslach talks about are the categories of things that really burn people out. Overload of demand, lack of control, 
insufficient reward, which is not just money, by the way. There's all kinds of uh, rewards that people really uh, uh, feel good about when they get them. And you see the rest uh, that are there. I won't read them all to you. We did an internal survey. We got Dr. Maslach to come here to actually give grand rounds, which was wildly uh, accept, uh, well accepted. Um, people were hanging from the rafters at grand rounds and in breakout sessions afterward. Uh, we had found out by doing her, her inventory from our physicians that we were effectively burned out in similar proportion to what the literature would say was basically going around the country. So I guess you could take solace we weren't worse, but you really didn't take solace in the fact that it wasn't good. We used trends of all the information that we gathered through all these exercises and selected the targets that we thought would have the most impact on engagement. Engagement is by and large the opposite uh, of burnout. Um, one of the biggest things going on at that point was the electronic health record. Um, it was burdening people like crazy um, and we really focused on streamlining that for people, uh, for divisions and individuals. And you can see the other things here that we paid attention to because I start to see that I the time starts to, to wane a little bit. So, um, but these are the kinds of things that our information told us um, that we should really be concentrating on, and we have. And I'm proud of the progress we've made, but there's still lots more to do. And one last concept, moral distress. I'm speaking from, the, from a pediatric critical care physician's uh, perspective, but this kind of thing affects other physicians, nurses, you name it. Moral distress is feeling constrained from being able to do the thing you think is right for a patient. You end up doing things to patients rather than for patients. And it can arise from a family's demands or a family just wanting to ignore a situation or from other practitioners. And this kind of intersects um, with the depersonalization domain uh, from, from Dr. Maslach, and you start to realize that you have to hone in on this. So I say, please bravely deal with these situations moving forward. Again, there are examples there, but it's basically the family wants to continue life support when you think it's not in the child's best interest and things like that. The medical team, the nursing team can be, uh, uh, can be um, helped by the palliative care and social work participation. It's really key that you deal with these situations and not let them fester um, as best you can because it really, really has a burden um, for the people who are caring for the patients. So then we moved all this stuff over the course of time, ends up in what I call the uh, office, we call the Office of Faculty Development. And again, I'm not going to read all the things that are on the slide, but there's a lot of activities that have to do with academic advancement, wellness, um, social connections, and, uh, and uh, getting transparent information out to people uh, in better fashion than we used to do in the past, things we heard people thought were lacking uh, before this time. So the only magic I know is to exhort you to listen to each other and trust each other's competence and commitments. That's my doctor's orders. Um, we have to have the institution work with us, but we also have to do some of the heavy lifting with the institution in order to better our situation. And this kind of is a, this sums up what I was trying to put together in the previous slides. It started with me, uh, as, as, as I see this, my 360 feedback and coaching, then my division. Then we had a resilient leadership program. We did the burnout work that led into the, the coalescence of the um, engagement team and now the Office of Faculty Development. So when I come back here someday, I'd be delighted to see that the office is being action and results focused, not keep planning and spinning our wheels about what we might do, really do it. Go after some low hanging fruit, let people know when you're making progress so they understand what's going on around them and let them know about the things that take longer. Culture change takes a long time, but keep them updated on what you're doing. And as individuals, 
engage in OFD, the Office of Faculty Development Activities. If you see something that, that garners your interest and you can help with that, please lend your expertise. We have to also work to, to make this work better. And change and adaptation require extra effort from each of us. So try to minimize the spread of negativity. It's hard, especially in these times. Um, and when this cartoon says, see Sisyphus, all it took was a little social collaboration. It's going to take more than a little social collaboration, but it will take that. If we don't work together, it won't get better. So moving on, retiring, a leap and a work in progress. And I like this quote as well. The years between 50 and 70 are the hardest. You're always being asked to do things, and you're not yet decrepit enough to turn them down. I will be 68 in a couple of months. I did not want to wait until I was 70 to, to hit his threshold. I decided that this was the time. Before making such a big leap, I did a little research. The three things that a retiree gains, leisure activities for sure, setting one's own pace and whatever you do, and self-actualization. You discover who you really are when you're not fettered by what you have to do at work every day. There are maybe things you are inspired to do that you didn't have time for. The three things a retiree misses most are structure, coming to work, meetings, clinical service, whatever you have to do with your day, purpose, the meaning of taking care of children and their families and, and working with others, and relationships. Um, I think that's going to be the hardest one for me because I'm a very gregarious person typically, and I'm surrounded by fantastic people who are well-intended, have senses of humor. Um, work hard, and I get a lot, a lot of validation um, from being involved in that. Um, these are the things that people miss. So here's what I'm going to be doing with some of my leisure time. I'm going to be trying to get better on the drums, so if I decide that I don't want to stay in retirement, I can go out and work with a rock band and go on tour. Not likely. Um, read more good books, sit by the pool and contemplate my navel, literally. Um, go on uh, travel, um, take bike rides and exercise to try to keep this temple <laughs> in, in, in as good a shape as I can so I can do all this other stuff. Um, structure plus purpose. I can't go into what this exactly means to me uh, in great detail because I don't have the time. Um, I'm doing some investigating about volunteering and, and advocacy activities related to children with physical and intellectual uh, disabilities. The, the young lady, the short young lady with the Down syndrome and the tracheostomy turns out to be a patient I took care of here with some other folks when she had her heart surgery done 22 years ago. Didn't know who she was at the time when I, when I met her and came to find that out later. And I really had a bit of an epiphany about things that I might want to do based on some of the conversations I had about, about her and others. More to come on that. So relationships, purpose, and structure. A dose of my own counsel means we have to continue to enjoy each other. I don't want to just pull away from the hospital and disappear off the face of the earth. Some of you know that we've already started some of that. We have what we call Top Brass, the team of pediatric bourbon, rye, and scotch sippers, which I uh, uh, formed with uh, some of our friends here at the hospital. Um, we have our own, oh, you can't see it. It doesn't show up really well. We have our own membership cards and everything. Um, it started with me and my wife, Kathy, and with Jim Moore from the NICU. And, uh, the, and unfortunately, you can't read the names at the bottom. We have as many as 26 people so far who have gone out. We don't talk about work. We have a good time. We share some good whiskey. Um, and we socialize and get to know each other's and each other's spouses well um, in ways we hadn't done before. And we really drink good stuff, too. Yes, that is Pappy Van Winkle, 20-year. Um, family relationships. Here's where I go back to, did I ever tell you how lucky I am? This is my daughter, Mia. 
Mia is out in Los Angeles, where she is a social worker that works with uh, crisis intervention for young people. Um, I don't know how she does it, but she does it. She does a great job with it, and I'll be keeping a much closer contact with her uh, than I probably have been doing now. And here is my other daughter, Sarah, um, with, with Brian. And um, the baby is Vivian Rose. Um, that's my first grandchild. Luckily, they only live about 15 or 20 miles from us, so I'm going to be a proud grandpa. And uh, Sarah actually works with Paul Dworkin's group. Um, she is uh, in the uh, Help Me Grow program specialist. So she's close by, and that's a real bonus for me. And speaking of relationships, once again, did I ever tell you how lucky I am? This is my wonderful wife, Dr. Kathy Kalkbrenner, who's now looking down, aw, shucks, in the back of the room. Um, if you want to know what the best thing that ever happened to Connecticut Children's was for me, you're looking at her. Um, you all know her as a fantastic physician, a mentor, a teacher, an advocate. Um, she never leads without being leading by example, and I respect her so much for what she does in the hospital. Obviously, I get the added benefit that you don't of having her in my life 24-7. Um, she's my confidant. She is my lover. She is my true friend. Um, and she always tells me, yeah, maybe just ought to change direction just a little bit because you're not really, you know, I get, a, I, get, I get good beneficial help from her. It's wonderful. And those pictures that I showed you before of what I'm going to be doing when I retire obviously are not going to be all on my own. Um, she's going to be doing many of them with me. And as Juan said, enjoy and savor her while you still have her for these next few years. I don't know how long it'll be, um, but at some point we will both be gone and riding off into the sunset together. Some thanks. Um, I tried collating a lot of pictures of people. I can't possibly put all the people on, on this slide or in the following slide of, of whom I owe thanks to. Um, many people from Chicago that, like I said, I said, may be listening now and many more from there. Um, at the top row here are our uh, nursing leaders and obviously all of the nursing staff. I just can't do it all. Um, there's Juan and Chris Fink and all the people in administration um, who have really supported me and my division and helped me along the way. Um, our, our director of nursing, Lisa Morello, who's the, the next one down at the bottom row, is the, uh, uh, actually is Nikki's supervisor and my confidant with engagement and burnout work. Um, Anna Marie is in, the, is in the room here with us, uh, second from the bottom on the, on the right. And uh, Nella Stoltz is there. And Angela Kaminsky, who was Juan's uh, gal Friday, I guess. If, am I allowed to say it that way? She actually is the brains behind his outfit. Um, there is no small uh, font small enough for me to get all the people in here to thank on one or ten slides. And at the bottom, I wrote, and a zillion more. Some of the people are on the line. Um, I just can't tell you how privileged I feel and honored to have worked both in Chicago and here, two great places where people who are doing the right thing day in and day out um, support me, um, make me feel like it really was a great place to be, both places. And I've been really, really lucky. So if I'm going to leave you, my main message, assert like you are right, listen like you might be wrong, be amazing, and embrace the fact that we need each other more than ever, more than ever. This is E-Dog, out. Thank you very much. Should I drop, was, uh, should I drop was, the mic? Just stay there, no, just stay there, and I'll be, <laughs> we want you on camera. So uh, that was amazing, uh, Aaron. Thank you very much for uh, everything you've done, uh, the way you've approached this, uh, the way you've kept your team together. You know, I always, uh, I always say that uh, 
you know, when you look at the critical care unit, uh, it's re really like a mass unit. And to be able to keep everyone in place for these many years without anyone exiting, it's, it's a testament to your leadership and your ability to maintain everyone uh, together under very stressful times because that is a very difficult place to be for all kinds of reasons. And that's, that's who you are, Aaron, and, and uh, we will have more time to honor that in, in many different ways. Thank you. We do have some questions. Uh -oh. And of course, your friend, Dr. Martin, ah. is the first one. And, uh, <laughs> so, Aaron, thank you for your collegiality and your many contributions to Connecticut Children's. I have only one question. <laughs> oh, God. What is the protocol for selecting your daily tie? <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy to do. I have so many, as you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just whatever, whatever strikes my fancy on the day. Yeah. Yeah. There's Thanks, a, John. There's also a uh, Lisa Morella uh, uh, writes a, a, a message. Uh, we love Nikki and are so grateful to Dr. Zucker and the PICU team. Um, another one is amazing. Thank you for sharing with us. This message uh, from from my own wife who says uh, that you made her cry, Aaron. Um, in the in for you know. It's not the first time, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so, so thank you. So, Aaron, can you? Uh, so, you know, these are complicated times, uh, in, and um, you know, it's you know very very stressful. Uh, put it, put this into context because you have been around for a number of years, and and you know, for some of the younger people, they may think this is the worst time. This will never get better. Um, so give us some sense, you know, from your, your many years of experience, or where, where do you think we are, where do you think we're going, and, and just maybe some, uh, some optimism as the day, you know, moves forward. I think the, my main <clears throat> reason to have optimism is some of the stuff that I, that I talked about. Uh, the, the, I hate to use the word journey, but the journey that, that I and, excuse me, that I and, and other folks have gone on, we are finally, we being the medical community and the administrators we work with, are finally really paying attention to the need for carving out resources and time to do things like peer-to-peer -peer coaching, to get some resilience and emotional intelligence training, um, to dedicate time to helping teach leaders how to be leaders. I didn't go to division chief school. There was no such thing. Um, you just did it, you know, as best you could, and if you had great talent in a certain area, it worked, and if you didn't, you just muddled through until somebody tried to help you stop. Um, and we're paying a lot more attention to it. Now, it's not easy because finances are not infinite, and again, nowadays, with the COVID stuff, it's even worse, at least temporarily. We'll get past that, um, and things will get more normal. Uh, I think that the attention has to be paid to the people, and if we pay attention to each other, and if the, the powers that are pay attention to the people, we will be able to re-energize, to re-engage people, um, and we'll be able to start doing it with them when they begin their careers, not when they're starting to feel burnout, and not when they're starting to feel like, what the hell did I get myself into? It will start in the very beginning. And so, you know, Lisa and folks are leading a, what's called the Lead You program here, not just for doctors, it's for people across the board um, to learn how to be better leaders so they, in turn, can work with other people in the institution, there'll be ripple effects. It's going to take time. It's a culture change. Thank you, Aaron. Um, from Jean, I'm not sure who Jean is. Uh, who did you want to play you in the made-for-TV movie for Baby Paul? Jean, <laughs> uh, there's no, there's no last name for Jean. Yes. So maybe from Chicago. <laughs> yeah, Jean, what, what did she say? 
Who did you want to play you in the made-for-TV movie for Baby Paul? <laughs> oh, when they, when they actually called me, I, I jokingly said, um, can you, remember, remember in the day, I said, um, can you get Tom Selleck to play my part? <laughs> and the woman said to me, why, do you look like Tom Selleck? And I said, no, I look like Richard Dreyfuss, but I don't want that to be the person that plays me. <laughs> actually, that conversation actually occurred. Once again, I don't make it up. That, that's great. Uh, uh, Adam, from your division members, a big heartfelt thank you for all you have done. We will sorely miss your professional presence, but look forward to continuing our social relationships. We will do that. And, um, and from uh, Leon Kamaitis, who has been retired ah. for a number of years, and, and Leon logs in and says, Aaron, congratulations. Thank you, and welcome to retirement. From, from I'll see Leon. you soon. Yeah. That's, um, another question is, uh, what, what has been your, your biggest challenge um, as, a, as a critical care specialist? Um, my biggest challenge, I think, was what I, what I had talked about. When I started to worry about the moral distress stuff, um, and I started to question my motivation and my emotional reward from the work, um, I had to find a way to work my, my, personally my way out of that box. Um, I did not want to just come and put in time. Um, I did not want to have people know that I would be walking around kind of like an empty shell. Um, and that would have been a horrible way to lead and a horrible way to feel. And I really just think that that was my biggest personal challenge. The medical stuff is medical stuff. You know, you, 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 take, care of, you take care of business. Uh, and trying to help other people navigate through that, that's my biggest challenge. And it also was something that I enjoyed doing once I kind of got prompted on better ways. Um, and, uh, just uh, this is from your family. Sarah and Baby Viv are here, um, and I had not heard the number of these stories before, so there you <laughs> go. <laughs> uh, from the residents, uh, thank you for all that you have done for us, taught us, shaped us. Uh, we cannot say enough how we appreciate you. And are you? Uh, one last question, and this is maybe sort of a reflection. So, so we have Nikki here, who's uh, uh, you know a testament to. Uh, resilience and in, in, in all so many ways and yeah. you know so often you have to deal with patients that are at some point you say I'm not sure we can do this and yet you you keep doing it and then you have Nikki who's here member of Connecticut Children so so how do you do that how do you teach that to the younger generations oh boy how do you do that um, what is the other term I don't like to use too much is true north but you just focus on your, your true north. You, just, you make the best decisions you can. And that goes back again to the, as long as we're not doing something to the patient, when we cross that mental boundary, uh, we are doing it still for the patient, working with the family. Then to my way of thinking, you just you know, damn the torpedoes and you move forward. Um, you have to figure out for yourself in an individual patient, um, you and the, and the rest of the staff, where you feel like you might get up to that boundary, but not cross it. From, the, um, from Kathy Barnett, just want to say thank you for the many years of service and friendship nursing critical care team. That's the other group of friends that you have. And, um, thank you. So oh, with that, I've got to put your mask back on. So um, again, thank you, Aaron, for, for just an amazing career and our friendship and you know, you're, I'm not going to let you go. You know, you, you know that. You're going to keep looking. And Kathy's here, so you can't go anywhere anyways. <laughs> uh, but 
but you know, your what you have taught us, uh, the way you practice, the way you approach life, is so important during this very difficult time in in our history in in the United States of America. Not only because of COVID-19, but because of all the inequalities that we're dealing with right now. So, so thank you for keeping that true north real for all of us. Uh, I, I am enormously grateful to you, and Connecticut Children's is enormously grateful for you. So we will have, in time, a pun house celebration of, or one of your choice. Uh, and till that time, thank you everyone for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, we had about 176 people, so thank you. And we will see you again on Friday for the Ask the Experts sessions, and then next Tuesday, once again, for Grand Rounds. Take care. Be safe. Bye-bye. Thank you.